My guest today is Dr. Gary Small. Dr. Gary Small is a professor of psychiatry at the University of California and is the director of UCLA Center on Aging. Dr. Gary Small is the author of a number of bestsellers on memory and aging, including The Memory Bible, An Innovative Strategy for Keeping Your Brain Young, and iBrain, Surviving the Technological Alteration of the Modern Mind. Uh, Dr. Gary Small is with me on the phone from California. Dr. Small, thank you very much for taking my call and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you. I'm delighted to be on your show today. Uh, first of all, uh, tell us about yourself, uh, about your education and about your work. I started out as uh, somebody who was involved in medicine. I was an intern in internal medicine. But in my practice of general medicine, I was so struck by how the mind is, is critically important, which led me to psychiatry. And through that uh, search through psychiatry, I realized that the aging brain is what it's all about. And that got me into geriatric psychiatry and studying Alzheimer's disease and memory and how the brain ages. And over the years, I've been fascinated by all the technology that we have that allows us to study the aging brain and have developed various technologies that allow us for the first time to see the physical evidence of Alzheimer's disease in living people. Uh, Dr. Small, before we discuss our usual and unusual memory slips, uh, please talk to us uh, that how much do we know about the workings of human memory? What exactly is our memory? How do we store and retrieve information in our brains? Memory is just critical to how we define ourselves as humans, because if you think about it, without memory, we have no past, we cannot plan for the future, and there's no present. So it defines who we are. And we can think about it as having several components. First, the element of gathering information and storing it. So we kind of put it away in little file cabinets in the brain. But the, the second very critical component of it is retrieving that information and where we can find it. So essentially, it's about encoding or storing information and retrieving it when we want it. Uh, so what happens to our memory as we age normally? Unfortunately, as we age, the wear and tear of life uh, seems to have a negative effect on the cells throughout the body. So there's processes like oxidation, where it's a bit like your body is rusting, uh, just like you leave a bicycle out in the rain. It gets sort of rusty. There's also inflammation, inflammatory processes seem to wear down the brain. And so these kinds of factors that are age-related seem to have a negative impact on the functioning of the brain cells. Now, when we study that with PET scanning or functional MRI scanning, we find that the cell function starts to break down before the cell structure breaks down. And also, our brain naturally compensates for this breakdown process. So we've done studies where we find that somebody may have, let's say, a genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease, and we give them a memory task, they can perform pretty well on the memory task. But if you look inside their brains, their brains have to work harder to perform as well 
as someone without that genetic risk. So what's happening is naturally we're, our brains are working overtime. We don't notice a difference, but eventually it gets so difficult that the compensatory process seems to break down, and that's when we really start having symptoms. When we struggle to remember something, what exactly happens in our brains? Is the system responsible to fetch the information not working properly or the information itself is lost in the depths of our brains? What exactly happens? How do we forget things? And then how do we struggle to remember them? Well, that's very uh, complex uh, array of questions. Let me see if I can tackle a few Mm -hmm. of them. One common phenomenon is this tip-of-the-tongue phenomenon, where we think we know the answer, but we can't quite get it, and then it comes to us later. It's Mm -hmm. almost as if our memories are living in neighborhoods, and we can't remember that item directly, but if we remember something next door, that triggers the memory we're searching for. Now, one thing we do know is that as we age, long-term memory is stronger than short-term memory. So you can remember perhaps your first kiss or the first time your your uh, child stepped and stood up mm-hmm. but you can't remember perhaps what you had for breakfast or the name of the actor who was in that movie you saw last week so these shorter term memories be- are, are less stable and we struggle to keep them in mind and try to retrieve them uh, can i rate the ability of my memory, is there a scale uh, and is there a technique to do so? When doctors look at this question of memory assessment, we use two approaches. And in my books, like the Memory Bible, I provide simple uh, systems to use to assess memory. So the two approaches we use have to do with subjective memory, that is, what we perceive our memory to be, and also objective memory, how we actually perform on a pencil and paper test. So in the Memory Bible, for example, there are a series of questions where people can rate themselves on their subjective memory. And we also give people word lists. So you time yourself, you study a list of, say, 10 words, and then you come back five or 10 minutes later and you see how many you can remember. Now, purpose in the books for doing that is to teach people simple memory techniques which we found in our studies and others have found will significantly improve memory performance and help people with these annoying age-related memory slips. Uh, What is successful aging? Uh, Talk to us about the genetic and non-genetic factors that determine our cognitive and physical health as we age. Most medical studies tend to focus on unhealthy aging. We look at disease and mm-hmm. how we can treat it. But in recent years, there's been some, effort, uh, some focus on what we call successful or healthy aging. So asking the question, what determines uh, living longer and living better? The MacArthur study of successful aging defines successful aging as cognitive and physical success or well-being. And they found, interestingly, that genetics were not as important as people had assumed. In fact, there's a formula about one-third of what predicts how long and how well we age comes from our genetic predisposition, the DNA we inherit from our parents. 
That means that two-thirds of what predicts successful aging has to do with non-genetic factors. And I think that lifestyle choices are critically important. I've talked about not just mental exercise, but physical conditioning, healthy diet, stress reduction, staying socially connected, having a positive attitude. There are a number of different strategies that we can engage in that will improve the quality of our life as we age and probably increase our life expectancy. Uh, we all feel concerned about our memory slips uh, and at times we joke about uh, our middle age pauses and senior moments but at a certain point it becomes a serious matter when should we start taking these memory slips uh, seriously perhaps as early signs of uh, uh, an illness uh, such as uh, alzheimer's disease often i suggest people try some of the memory techniques see if there's improvement and if there's no improvement it's a good idea to check with your doctor however there are so many people in denial about these memory slips and they overlook them that they wait much too long i think because of the stigma of a diagnosis of alzheimer's disease they're afraid of what these memory pauses or senior moments might mean and so they avoid the doctor and they get a diagnosis and treatment much later in the course of the decline than probably they should. We found that when we treat people early on, we seem to get a better outcome than if we wait longer to initiate treatment. Uh, you also say in your book that Alzheimer's disease is not simply an illness that some old people get. Uh, Alzheimer's disease uh, are a related dementia may be everybody's end result of brain aging. Uh, talk to us about that. That's a, a point that I came to as a result of our studies of the brain as it ages. And if you know how you define Alzheimer's disease has to do with abnormal protein deposits in the brain, ab- abnormal deposits of amyloid plaque and tau tangles. Now, when we study the brain scans of people who don't have Alzheimer's disease, they have mild cognitive impairment, we see those same abnormalities, but less concentrated. And in fact, some of these abnormalities can build up in people decades before they get Alzheimer's disease. So one could argue that Alzheimer's disease is the end result of the brain aging. And for each person, the rate that that brain ages depends on their genetic predisposition and their lifestyle. So if you look at the risk for Alzheimer's disease at age 65, it's about 10% or more. But at age mm-hmm. uh, 85, it's, it approaches 50% or more. So age is the biggest risk factor, and we're trying to understand what we can do to initiate treatments before there's a lot of decline. I'm convinced that uh, the best way to attack this disease is to try to identify people at risk and protect the brain while it's still healthy rather than trying to repair one once it's damaged. When someone gets Alzheimer's disease, what are the major changes that happen inside the brain? Well, we see certain areas of the brain that are attacked more than other areas. Areas that control personality, memory, higher cognitive status, really what defines who we are as human beings. Uh, areas of the brain that are spared are the areas that control our motor function or sensation or generally our visual ability. So what happens 
initially and as the disease progresses is essentially the person is robbed of their humanity, what defines them. So they're a shell of the person that once was. And I think this phenomenon is quite devastating and confusing to caregivers and family members because they see the patient looks the same physically, but mentally they're not there. And they go through a process of mourning the loss of the personality uh, while the person is still alive. And some even feel guilt that when the patient does eventually die, that there's a sense of relief. What about the language processing? Does it stay with you? Uh, language is also attacked, and so people start having difficulty finding the right word, identifying objects. Now, of course, these can all be parts of normal aging. As, as we age, we might be tired and have trouble finding a word. And so this is why people get so anxious about these age-related changes. And there's often a fine line between what we call just normal aging and what we define as a disease. If I start forgetting my keys and start forgetting uh, my friend's phone numbers, most of the times we take it, oh, this is the pressure, this is the stress of working hard and long hours and all those things. When should I start thinking that I should go to my doctor? Well, these are normal aspects of aging and of life, and many things can cause uh, memory slip, whether it's misplacing your keys or forgetting an appointment. It can be from... Uh, thyroid problem, it can be from other medical illnesses, drug side effects, and so forth. I think if it's something that is disturbing you or others are commenting about it, it's a good idea to see your doctor and find out what's going on. It's always better to be on the safe side and get a proper assessment because oftentimes we can do something to help. Uh, in your book, The Memory Bible, you describe innovative memory exercises and brain fitness program to eliminate forgetfulness. Uh, I want to go through these uh, one by one. Uh, to start with, can we improve or should I say train our memory? Yes, and there are many memory techniques that have been around for many years. And in The Memory Bible, I try to simplify them. So the, the, the basis of most of these techniques is an exercise I call Look, Snap, Connect. So if you can remember these three steps and apply them, it will be a tremendous asset to your memory ability. So look is a reminder to focus attention. The mm -hmm. biggest reason people do not remember is they're simply not paying attention. Second is snap, and snap is shorthand for create a mental snapshot. Most of us find it easier to retain information if we can create visual images to help our memory. And then finally, connect is a way of linking up those snapshots in a way that's meaningful so we can retrieve the information. So an example might be you're running out of the house and you have to re remember to buy, an, buy eggs and buy stamps. What you can do is use Look, Snap, Connect and visualize in your mind's eye an egg with a stamp on it. Now, you can take these same techniques and, and use them for remembering names and faces. Eighty-five percent of older people complain that they recognize a face, but they can't remember the name. And the technique doesn't have to be perfect. It's just a way to focus attention and kind of jog your memory. So let's say you meet uh, oh, uh, a woman named Ollie. You might think of her having an owl-shaped face. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps you meet uh, Mr. Foreman. You notice his forehead is prominent. 
or Harry has a lot of hair. So these kinds of techniques are tremendously effective. I usually don't uh, do the carnival act with people and try to remember hundreds of names, but I was at a meeting of some of our memory trainers in uh, Florida not long ago, and there were 40 of them, and they went around the room and introduced themselves, and I thought for fun I'd try to use it. I remembered 37 out of 40 just using these simple techniques. Uh, how does uh, stress uh, affect our ability to remember things? Well, stress is the enemy of memory, and earlier when we talked about how we get frustrated when we can't remember things, that's when stress and anxiety kicks in, and that actually makes matters worse. In fact, when we're worried about our memory, we actually perform worse on memory tests. Mm -hmm. Studies of animals under stress show that the parts of the brain that are controlling memory actually get smaller as a result of chronic stress. And if we inject human volunteers with the stress hormone cortisol, we find that it temporarily impairs learning and retrieval of memories. So we want to manage stress as best we can. We can't eliminate it completely, but in my books, I have lots of exercises that people can try out to see if it can lower their stress levels, breathing exercises, uh, different ways of managing uh, our tasks. Generally, we put a lot of the stress on ourselves. We take on too much and don't delegate to others. What is mental workout uh, that you talk about in your presentations and in your book? This is another concept of mental aerobics, and it really gets into this new brain fitness movement where there have been a lot of studies showing that people who spend more time in mentally stimulating activities have a lower risk for Alzheimer's disease. Now, the cause and effect of that relationship has not been secured. So it's possible that uh, when we do a lot of crossword puzzles or a lot of mental gymnastics, we just get better uh, at those different tasks, and it doesn't protect our brains from Alzheimer's disease. Having said that, uh, many of us still recommend keeping the mind active and enjoying it. And I think for each of us, there's kind of a sweet spot where we're training our brains without straining our brains so that the mental task is fun, it's an interesting game, and we're challenged, and it's, it's not too challenging and not too simple. And often we try to cross-train our brains, just like we do at the gym with our body. So one day we might exercise the left brain with word puzzles, and the next day we might have visual-spatial puzzles with the right brain. But I think it's important that people realize that you can have fun with these kinds of activities, but it hasn't been absolutely proven that it protects your brain health. And in fact, in terms of the scientific evidence, it's stronger that aerobic physical conditioning or cardiovascular conditioning is brain protective more than mental conditioning. Uh, your comprehensive brain fitness program includes a brain diet of memory protective foods. Tell us about this. We've uh, talked about the brain-healthy diet. My wife, Gigi Vorgan, has written these books with me, and uh, by our third book, The Longevity Bible, we were already including in the appendix uh, recipes for brain-healthy foods. And in the memory prescription, we have a two-week program where we have a balanced brain-healthy diet, and we find that in our studies at UCLA, when people go on this two-week program and they combine the healthy diet 
with the different stress reduction and that it really has an impact. There's sort of a synergy among these different approaches. Now, the brain-healthy diet has several components. It's very similar to the Mediterranean diet where there's an emphasis on omega-3 fats from fish and olive oil, on fresh fruits and vegetables that are antioxidants, so lots of berries, green leafy vegetables, trying to avoid the so-called high glycemic index carbohydrates that tend to spike up your blood sugar and then it comes down. And these kinds of foods, the processed foods like the chips and the crackers from the boxes, they'll tend to increase the risk for type 2 diabetes, which increases the risk for Alzheimer's disease. And the final component of the diet is calorie control because if we're overweight, we put ourselves at risk for high blood pressure, for high cholesterol, for diabetes, lots of age-related illnesses that can attack brain health. There is a chapter in your book, uh, Wise Up, about medicine. Medicine is a part of our lives as we get older. We find that most older people are on a combination of several medications to deal with these age-related illnesses. And it's important to take our medicines, medical health care, seriously. Uh, we find that just taking the blood pressure medicine or just taking the cholesterol medicine has an impact on quality, longevity, and life expectancy. It can prolong your life expectancy by a year or two. Uh, so it's it's important to go to the doctor when there's a health problem, look at the medicines we're taking, try not to overuse medicines, but certainly to use them wisely. Uh, you suggest that a number of lifestyle choices that we make directly affect the aging of our brains. Yeah, I think that we have much more control than we think. When we look at st- stress levels and what we can do about our stress, when we look at our physical conditioning, uh, when we look at the relationships in our lives, whether they're healthy relationships or toxic relationships, all these choices we have every day have an impact on how we feel now and how well we will age in the future. My guest today is Dr. Gary Small. Dr. Gary Small is a professor of psychiatry at the University of California and is the director of UCLA Center on aging. Dr. Gary Small is the author of a number of bestsellers on memory and aging. Dr. Small, in your book, I Brain, Surviving the Technological Alteration of the Modern Mind, you say that this digital age is triggering a different kind of brain evolution. Uh, please talk to us about that. What's happening today is that we have so much technology we're exposing our brains to that it's impacting how our brains function. The Kaiser Family Foundation study recently reported that the average young person, ages 8 to 18, spends about 11 and a half hours a day with their technology, their computers and their cell phones. And this includes multitasking time, but doesn't even include homework and work time. So this is a tremendous amount of time with the technology. So it's really having an important impact. They're working their brains well with the technology. They're quite good at it. They're, they're adapting to it very well. But the downside is these young digital natives who grow up with the technology are not working their brains in terms of face-to-face human contact skills. If you have a conversation with one of them, they are less inclined 
to maintain eye contact mm-hmm. or to notice the subtle nonverbal cues that occur mm-hmm. during the course of a normal conversation. Now, we have, in contrast, the digital immigrants, say my generation, who did not grow up with such an influx of day-to-day technology exposure and had more time with face-to-face communication. So today, I think there's not the traditional generation gap, but we have what I call a brain gap between the digital natives and digital immigrants. And in iBrain, Gigi Vorgan and I, we present a solution, and that is to upgrade the tech skills of the older digital immigrants and help the younger digital natives with their face-to-face human contact skills. So technology is not only changing our lives, it is changing our brains also. You suggest uh, uh, in your book that the brain structure uh, has evolved differently just during the previous generation. What you find is initially there are changes in in brain function, and and we've shown that with our functional MRI studies. In fact, we uh, looked at people searching online for the first time, and we found that with practice just a week, an hour a day, that we could change the function of the brain. There were significant increases in frontal lobe activity when they searched online. And the next step is structure. Other studies have found that uh, different types of mental activities, when they're repetitive, will change brain structure. There have been studies of people who juggle. They find the right side of the brain actually increases in size as a result of juggling. Or the famous uh, studies of London taxi cab drivers found that the left hippocampus, a memory center, excuse me, the right hippocampus, a memory center in the brain, and on the right side controlling visual spatial skills, the size of that a part of the brain correlated directly with the number of years that the taxi drivers had been driving. So we're at a milestone in brain evolution, I think, and if this influx and exposure to the brain continues, uh, we're going to see a different kind of brain in the future. We've seen this in the past. For example, there have been major milestones in brain evolution. Hundreds of thousands of years ago, our ancestors figured out how to create a handheld tool from, say, a rock or a stone. That led to tremendous growth in the prefrontal cortex, the thinking brain, because uh, developing a handheld tool involves complex complex reasoning and planning. And there was coevolution of grammatical language and more complex social networks. So I'm convinced that this new technological environment is not only altering our lives, but altering our brains. And uh, it is not only changing the brain, the social landscape is also uh, changing. Uh, We are neglecting the human contact. And for the younger generation that you call digital natives, it is becoming more and more difficult to recognize the human emotions. So there are social implications also. There have been studies studies supporting that idea. Uh, A group of scientists looked at uh, about 200 students ages 17 to 23, and they had them look at a face, morph from a neutral emotional expression to either a happy face or an angry face. And they found if the experimental subjects played a violent video game before the task, it took them longer to recognize the happy face. So part of it is the content or the type of program that is being 
used by young people with their technology. And if we can harness the positive programs, understand these impacts, we can probably improve our brain function and improve our quality of life with the technology. Studies have found, for example, that surgeons who play video games make fewer errors in the operating room. We know that we can improve peripheral vision and attention with some of these computer programs. And there's a burgeoning brain fitness uh, business looking at different types of computer programs that can improve cognitive skills and teach older people techniques like Look, Snap, Connect using the computer. So I think it's, a, it's not just a time of caution, but it's a time of opportunity if we use the technology right. What is plastic mind? Well, we often, as neuroscientists, uh, refer to the brain as plastic, and we're referring to the fact that it's quite malleable or changeable from moment to moment. This is particularly true of the young brain, and in fact, there's a process from birth through adolescence called pruning, wherein 60% of the synaptic connections between brain cells or neurons are literally pruned away. So this idea of use it or lose it is quite pertinent for a young brain. Now, we talked about uh, human eye contact and perhaps empathy is, is another issue in the young developing brain. We know that empathy skills are not fully developed in an adolescent as compared to an older person. And frontal lobe skills, planning skills, are not fully developed. So there's a question as to what's going to happen to the future digital natives when they grow up, when they're in their 40s and 50s, when they're running the countries that we see today, and they have not uh, perhaps had as much time to develop their empathy skills and frontal lobe skills as a result of the uh, overexposure to technology. Will we have a less empathic society? Okay, with all this technology around, people are getting addicted to it. Uh, as you say in your book. Uh, as far as brain is concerned, is this addiction uh, similar to other addictions? I think it is. I think that we can get addicted to the Internet or technology just the way we get addicted to food or drugs or alcohol. There's a, a neurotransmitter system called the dopamine system, a very primitive one in the brain, that mod modulates all rewards in the brain and modulates any kind of addiction. Now, there's debate whether we can truly get addicted to technology. Uh, the American Psychiatric Association may call it a compulsive disorder and say that, well, it's just an obsessive person uh, working with the computer. And that may be true. We might be arguing about semantics. But I'm convinced that people have their lives disrupted from the technology addiction, just the way they're disrupted from any kind of addiction. And in fact, in Asia, there are a number of rehab centers for teenagers who cannot seem to stop playing video games, and we're beginning to see them in the United States as well. Are we becoming more and more multitasking? Uh, how does our brain react when we try to do many things at the same time using fancy gadgets? We are multitasking more, and it's ironic because the Internet was developed as a result of an essay in uh, Atlantic Monthly by an MIT professor who proposed that we use this kind of computer approach so that scholars could save time 
from having to look up all these different references and they could be more creative. Mm-hmm. So what's happened is we found we're more efficient when we do more, but we take on more and we seem to multitask more. And we have this perception that we're getting more done, but the reality is that we're just moving faster and we're making more errors. So we're quicker, but we're sloppier. And in iBrain, we try to help people to become more aware of their multitasking, provide some strategies to uh, cut it back so they can truly get more done and enjoy their lives more. Uh, we have a new generation gap, as you described a couple of minutes earlier, uh, which is the brain gap. How can we bridge the brain gap? We've got to help uh, older digital immigrants with their technology skills. Uh, studies show that the older you are, the less inclined you are to use technology. So, for example, in the workforce, the uh, older workers may be quite good at uh, committee meetings or writing memos or face-to-face contact, but it's the younger workers who are uh, understanding the new programs that really accelerate and make uh, the workplace more efficient. So a strategy for a supervisor might be to team up uh, a digital immigrant with a digital native, and the digital immigrant might help the younger uh, native with their face-to-face skills, and the native might help the older individual with their human contact skills. And there are simple exercises we can use. When I go to colleges and universities, I have the students just pair up and do uh, an attentive listening exercise where one person talks and the other one just maintains eye contact. And it's tremendously powerful and compelling to them. So there are simple strategies balancing our lives, taking time offline to reconnect with nature, with our friends face-to-face, that can have a huge impact on this brain gap. Dr. Small, when you look at uh, an MRI image uh, of a brain, uh, I mean, you can identify different activities, different processes, but most of the brain is is like mystery to us. Is that correct? Yes, all we're looking at in an MRI, functional MRI scan is where the brain is working at the time. It doesn't really tell us every detail of every feeling and experience. So the technology is remarkable. We're learning more and more, and it's up to the, uh, the, the cleverness of the scientist to design the experiment to learn more, but we have a long way to go. Which activity or process of brain you consider is your favorite mystery? Well, my favorite mystery is what makes us tick, and this is what drew me to psychiatry, that the mm-hmm. mind uh, is so complex and it works so hard to deal with all the pains and struggles that define the human condition. And how do we unravel those mysteries? How do we find better ways to deal with our emotional uh, pain? And how do we become better people as a result of it? Uh, do you have a website where listeners can find yes. more information uh, about your work? The website is drgarysmall.com or drgarysmall.com, and uh, it's featuring all the books right now, particularly iBrain. Dr. Gary Small, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, and goodbye.